Restaurant chefs and home cooks alike are renewing their passion for humanity's oldest culinary pursuit, foraging. For foragers, free food is all around us, from berries to leaves and, yes, even weeds. But the key to success is learning to identify those wild edibles and find safe ways to harvest them before you consume them. Welcome to Route 51. I'm Shireen Seward. Today we explore the world of foraging. It's a wonderful way to engage with the natural world. It's an important step in achieving a more sustainable and ethical lifestyle and a way to supplement your food supply without going to the store. We invite you to join in this discussion today by calling us at 800-780-9742 or email your questions and comments to ideas at WPR.org. Sam Thayer is an author, forager, speaker, and internationally recognized authority on edible wild plants. He's been teaching and leading foraging workshops around the country since 1995, and he also harvests wild rice and produces maple syrup. His mission is to promote responsible foraging, nature appreciation and conservation, and sustainable food production systems. He grew up in the Wausau area, now living in northern Wisconsin. Sam, welcome to Route 51. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. We're excited to have you. I've got to tell you, I was looking on your website, foragersharvest.com, and it, there's a lot of information there. The welcome note caught my eye. It says that your first presentation on edible wild plants was to your seventh grade science class. You were demonstrating the foods you collected regularly on your three-mile walk to school. Sam, I'm picturing the faces in the classroom. What was the reaction like from your classmates and your teachers when you stood up and talked about all these plants that you eat? Well, it varied from one to another. Um, there were some people who were excited. Um, there was a few friends I knew that also foraged. Um, there were some people who were disgusted and terrified, um, and there was quite a few things in between. But there was this intense curiosity um, from all those levels, uh, you know, like, really, you can eat that? Right. Really, you can eat that? You know, uh, so uh, it seems to appeal to everybody, even if they think they're not interested. They kind of want to hear about it. Oh, for sure. For sure. It's so interesting. And and one of the things on your website, I'm looking at it right now, it says connecting people in nature through the ancient craft of foraging. And that made me think, I mean, obviously we had to forage when, you know, our ancestors had to forage because you didn't have a supermarket. But, you know, over the years that kind of went away. Why do you think people are drawn to it now? Well, you know, it's the best food in the world. That's one reason. The other reason is it's really fun. You know, and when you look at the bigger historical picture, um, every agrarian culture in the history of the world also foraged for vegetables. And with the Industrial Revolution, as we mechanized food processing and food storage and food transportation, we lost a big part of our diets. And then when that started to become associated with poverty, especially with the Great Depression in, in the United States, you know, there became a stigma attached to some foraged foods, and we lost something really valuable. I, I argue that, that foraged foods is the missing essential element of the Mediterranean diet. Uh, we can't even have that truly healthy, varied diet that rural people all over the world had for ages and ages unless we incorporate foraging, because most of the vegetables in the world, fruits and vegetables, are not very marketable. They're not very shelf-stable. They're not easy to transport. And as we're rediscovering these, people are really excited. There's flavors you can't get anywhere else. 
Uh, and there's nutrition you can't get anywhere else. And there's the fun, the fun of actually going out and finding your food. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about nutrition. We had an email uh, come in already from, from John who says that he's been able to expand his plant-based diet by using two of your books. Um, but one issue he has is that there's no nutritional content provided for some of these plants. So it's, it's hard for him to find out, for example, if a plant is high in protein or zinc or some other mineral. So how do you find out what you're eating as far as nutritional content? You know, that's a really good point, and this is a, p- a place where we ought to put more resources and hopefully will. Um, you know, the nutritional analyses cost quite a bit of money, and I paid for just a couple to be done. Okay. But if someone threw a whole bunch of money in my lap, I would pay for a bunch of these to be done. Interestingly, we know a lot more about the nutritional composition of edible wild plants in sub-Saharan Africa and in various parts of the tropical world where anthropologists and ethnobotanists have studied the nutritional value of foods. And there are a number of North American plants, but it's a small minority for which we've studied this. But what we can say as a general trend is that wild foods in general have two to three times the nutritional density of cultivated foods. Um, if you, so one thing you can look up, for example, is the American wild persimmon, the USDA's nutritional database has American wild persimmon, compare that to Japanese cultivated persimmons that are available in the market, and which is its closest living relative. The, the, the nutritional um, density of the American persimmon is just like off the charts compared to the domestic persimmon. And when we, the few instances that we have a comparison like that it's just it's incredible. Um, some of the anthropologists that have looked at this in other parts of the world have concluded essentially that the reason that humans don't taste nutrition other than salt is because a diet based on wild foods gives us an oversupply of virtually all of our mineral nutrients and vitamins so that we never needed to taste them to tell our bodies we were getting them in the past. Hmm. Um, so I would love to have the specifics for all these plants, but we, we just don't. We just, that work hasn't been done. That's so interesting. How, how hard is it to survive on wild foods alone? Obviously, our ancestors did it, so it can be done. But um, in today's world, is it, is it hard to do? Well, it's certainly doable. But we're accustomed to getting our food for a small portion of our labor you know they they say that it's seven to ten percent of our income goes to pay for our food and that's a really small expenditure of our labor if you wanted to feed yourself by you know eating all wild food you'd have to be spending an average you know three to seven hours a day it would vary you know depending on the time of year fall would be really busy but you know no one has to do that or try that to get into foraging it's really easy to add a few convenient fruits and vegetables to your diet. Um, and when they're in season, they're easier to get than they are than going to the store, you know? So uh, part of me says, hey, don't try to bite off that big mouthful. Just, just take a little nibble and you're going to like it and, and keep going. We'll talk about food safety in a, in a minute, but there are other safety factors to take into account when foraging for food. Foraging in a safe area, obviously it means several things, like don't trespass because you could get in trouble or, get, you know, get shot. So, what, But what else do you need to take in a, into account, like the terrain? Well, yeah, of course, you know, 
forage where you have permission. Know what's what's legal and and, and don't and don't trespass. Just as with hunting or fishing, um, and then you know, over the last thirty years, the the frequency of spraying of herbicide, the the universality of herbicide use has really shot up. And I would say that's the biggest safety concern that I I have with foragers. And I wish there was a real easy answer, um, you know, because sometimes you know you may be in a public park and something that you're allowed to collect say black raspberries in a public park and uh they're being incidentally sprayed maybe they're near a buckthorn patch Mm -hmm. and the state park is spraying the buckthorn and some of that spray that overshoot hits the black raspberries that's really hard for me to tell you how to prevent that except that keep your eye out anything that looks strange Mm -hmm. like if the plant has any strangeness to its growth form or there's any if you see shiny leaves this shouldn't be shiny well, those are your two big warnings. Stay out of this area. Um, uh, but so I forage in areas that I know well. I know what's going on there. One great thing about foraging is it's kind of like perennial gardening. You generally know exactly where the plants are going to be from one year to the next. So you can get used to your foraging areas and you know which areas are sprayed and which areas are not sprayed. And particularly if it's your own property or the property of a friend. Um, and you can find a lot of stuff in a few limited areas that you frequent. You know, you mentioned parks. So are we allowed legally to forage in state and national parks? Are there rules about that? Well, the rules depend on the park and sometimes specifically park by park. Um, but like, for, for example, in Wisconsin state parks, you're allowed to pick fruits, mushrooms, nuts, berries, and also asparagus. You know, they, they, they put in there. And so uh, for personal consumption... Um, other states don't allow that. I don't think Illinois allows that in their state parks, for example, and I know West Virginia doesn't, but Wisconsin and Minnesota do. Uh, and so it depends on park by park. In fact, in Minnesota, they have a sign at one of their state parks encouraging and explaining collecting shake bark hickory nuts, which I think is fantastic, um, uh, legitimizing foraging as an outdoor activity. So there's great berry picking in some of the Wisconsin state parks and forests. The national forests and our county forests generally have the same set of rules. Um, but if you want to do something like eat root vegetables, mm-hmm. then then you then you're going to need to be doing that on private land, um, and, and and really you kind of become the caretaker of a place where you do that. I harvest ramps on my property and have for you know two decades, um, and my ramp population is increasing because I, I I do that responsibly and carefully, and I steward them. Let's talk a little bit about food safety because I I think for me the biggest question I have is about food safety and you talked about the drift but but what how can you tell what's safe to eat and what isn't as far as like what plants do you absolutely need to avoid what's how do you know what's edible what's poisonous okay well great question and that's the first question is is how do you know what to eat and there are no general rules it's it's on a plant by plant basis so i tell people when you eat a banana you know it's a banana you don't you don't stop and think what if this isn't a banana Right. You're totally confident in what a banana is. Right. And when you are at that level of confidence with any food item, then you're ready to eat it. And when I say that, someone might think, well, yeah, but these green things all look so similar. Well, if they all look the same to you, you've got no business eating them. They need to look completely and absolutely distinct. Right. Mm -hmm. So you learn plants one at a time and you learn them carefully and thoroughly. And it might take a little bit of effort. Somebody might have to show you the plant. But if you're going to learn it through a book, 
you might spend a few hours looking at the plant, looking at the book, looking at another book, looking back at the plant, reading the description, comparing features until you're like, yes, this is definitely the right plant. But once you go through that and build that confidence and eat that plant, then you'll, you'll have it for the rest of your life. So I tell people to start with the plant that you have seen many times that you're familiar with, but maybe you don't know its name, something in your backyard or a place you frequent. Figure out its name. Then figure out if the plant is edible. Because if it's a familiar, common plant, the chances are probably better than 50-50 there's something edible on that plant. Start that way, one plant at a time. And if you learn five this year and five next year, you've got ten, and that's not bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Foraging for mushrooms seems a little trickier. Um are there some special considerations you recommend uh, if I'm interested in, in mushrooms? You know, foraging for mushrooms is not a lot trickier. There's, there's two things to keep in mind. One is with mushrooms, you only see the reproductive organ of that organism. The rest of the organism is hidden underground or in a wood that it's digesting or, or whatever. So you can't see the whole organism. So you have to look a little bit more carefully at the parts you see because you can't see all of it. Um, but the, the process is essentially the same uh, of, you know, and, and what I find is that mushroom experts feel like mushrooms are easier than plants and plant experts feel like plants are mm. easier than mushrooms. <laughs> um, th- there are more poisonings by mushrooms by far, mm-hmm. but that's mostly because there's more people who eat mushrooms thinking that they can just grab a wild mushroom and eat it without identifying it. That's where the problem comes in with plants or mushrooms. People thinking that, oh, you can eat wild mushrooms. Well, here's a wild mushroom. I'll eat it. It's not like that. You know, you have to identify it. Or people lose track of the fact that specificity is necessary. So someone might have heard, you can eat fern fiddleheads. So they go find a fern and they eat it. And some ferns make you sick. You have to know what kind of fern. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not, not any fern. And so that's mainly where people run into problems is believing they don't have to identify it beyond this really broad category. You're listening to Sam Thayer, our guest today on Route 51, as we continue our discussion on foraging for wild foods. Ahead, what you can harvest right now and the tools you need to get started. And we'll answer your questions, too, when you call us at 800-780-9742. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. You're listening to Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Shereen Seward. We continue now with our discussion on foraging with Wisconsin author and expert Sam Thayer. We'd love to hear your questions, too. You can email us at ideas at WPR.org or join us by phone at 800-780-9742. Sam, I'd imagine that foraging for food depends a great deal on the seasons and the weather and that it's always going to be different no matter what time of year it is. Can you take us through the seasons, starting with spring, and what, what would be in season to forage in spring? Sure. So, of course, the first season is maple syrup season on that cusp of, of winter and spring. And, you know, for Native people in the upper Midwest, that was one of the biggest harvests of the year um, and still is one of those normal wild foods. Um, and then after the real spring starts, 
then you get all sorts of early spring vegetables. And one of the great things about foraging is you can get plants early in the year, earlier than you're likely to get anything from your garden. So we have all these really cold, hardy plants that come up immediately when the ground thaws or the snow melts. Things like stinging nettle, um, ramps, or in other parts of the state, the, the American wild garlic, the native wild garlic, um, uh, things like basswood leaves, spring beauty. So just tons of spring greens, dandelion greens. Um, and, you know, you'll, you'll get a lot of the seasons are short for the individual plants. So you get to mid-spring, and it's all different greens. And you get to late spring, it's all different greens still, and a lot of shoot vegetables. Shoot vegetables, you know, com- comparable to asparagus, what's so fascinating is we have one shoot vegetable that you can buy in our stores, asparagus, and mm-hmm. that's it. But there's about 70 wild shoot vegetables that really? you can pick in Wisconsin. Wow. Um, and, you know, you, there's, not, there, there's, there's only 30 different species in most produce departments. There's not room for 70, right? right? And they have, they have to have a, a good sh- shelf life. Mm-hmm. to be sold in a store. And a lot of these wild shoot vegetables, they're only out there for five or seven days to be picked, mm-hmm. and they're not going to keep for more than two days. So, so you can't get them anyway other, other than gathering them. Um, as you get to later spring and early summer, then you get a bunch of these what I call hot weather greens. A lot of these are garden plants, um, such as uh, uh, lamb's quarters and amaranth, uh, purslane, things that are common hot weather weeds. They're also excellent leafy greens, and then fruits start coming in, first with wild strawberry, and then through mid to late summer, more fruits, you know, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, dewberries, uh, you know, just, and that's you know, some of the better known stuff, but there's, there's nanny berries, so I guess they're more late summer and fall, um, and then you get, yeah, to, to late summer and autumn, and you start getting nuts, seeds, things like wild rice, lotus nuts, acorns, hickory nuts hazelnuts, uh, walnuts, and that's the big season. If you're going to eat wild food through the winter, you got to get a boatload mm-hmm. of something and store it up, um, you know, to have through the winter. Um, and then root vegetables have kind of a two seasons. You can either get root vegetables mostly in the early spring or in the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the early spring, before they start to grow and use that root energy to make a top, and then in the fall, as they've stored all that energy – through the rest of the growing season and they're you know going to keep it over the winter that's when you would take the energy from those root vegetables so spring and fall uh, and that's kind of your your foraging season and winter is the time to process a lot of your foods you know we we will make flour from various things we've collected and husk out the nuts and make hickory milk all winter long so we eat a lot of wild food all winter but we're not gathering it in those four months i want to ask you about taste are, are wild foods generally more bitter than cultivated ones? Are lots of them an acquired taste, or are some more readily palatable to most people than others? Well, the thing about wild foods is it, it runs this whole gamut. So there are, there are a bunch of things that are edible in the wild that are not great, you know, and I don't focus on those. Um, I might point them out to people. Um, because I'm really interested in the ones that taste really good. And, you know, people will often tell me they don't eat wild food, and I'll say, well, what about wild rice? What about maple syrup? Mm-hmm. What about morel mushrooms? How about blueberries, raspberries? And all of a sudden, they're, oh, oh, yeah, I eat those things. Well, those things are great. People recognize that, that, that wild strawberries are better than store-bought strawberries. They're, they're more labor-intensive to pick. I would say that that applies generally across the board. 
there are a few wild berries that are edible that aren't very good, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on those. But but you know the ones that are great, uh, they're better than anything you can buy. And it's the same with leafy greens. Um, leafy greens are better the fresher they are. And here's a little secret not many people know is we breed our vegetables for shelf life and we breed them for like a suspended animation in their growth hmm. to extend the, the period at which we can harvest them. So you get things like broccoli and celery, which are kind of tender. We've bred them to be only kind of tender so they have a better shelf life. Similar wild vegetables are much more tender. They're much more digestible. And they generally have a better flavor because we haven't bred them for that shelf life and for that also field life, that long harvest season that's um, just economically important in our food system. So you get better vegetables. I mean, people that tell me they don't like vegetables, I can say, well, let me peel this parsnip stalk at just the right stage and you might like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. People are often just shocked. Um, but it shouldn't be shocking. Like we know this about so many – you know, there's always been this, like, kind of bivalent view of wild foods. They're poverty foods and they're royalty foods. If you look back in the history of medieval Europe, wild foods were poverty food and royalty food. And interestingly, you know, there was a wild grain in Europe, well, still is, but it's not collected much, um, they called manna grass. And peasants in Poland, for example, would collect manna grass from the wild to give to their lords in lieu of their normal grain payment because it, 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 was, it was something that was so valuable, but only peasants and royals ate it. Um, and we still have the same thing today. It's, it's, it's poverty food, but it's awesome food. Well, besides dandelions, um, what do you think is maybe the most common and easy-to-find plant that most people don't even have a clue is edible? Well, there's two plants I like when I get asked that question. One is thistles, because we we all know about thistles. But there is a stage of growth in all of our native and non-native thistles in Wisconsin at which the stems are a fantastic vegetable. And think of it this way. Those thorns, they're there to protect something. Like, a lot of cows and horses will eat thistles even with the thorns. That's how much they like them. Hmm. But when the thistle's blooming, there's, there's, it's way too old. But at the right stage of growth, when it's like knee-high, way before there's flower buds, if you cut a thick thistle stalk at the base and peel off the outside, what I do is I remove the leaves while it's standing with a knife, then cut it at the base, and then peel the outer skin, the rind, which will take all the thorns off with it. And all of a sudden, you have this, like, really tender vegetable stick. And it's like a great plant for converting people because it's so common, and it's once it's peeled that way it's so good it turns from the scary thing into a vegetable and i can do that in like one minute uh, and another one is black locust flowers these are found statewide this tree is uh it's native to north america uh not native to wisconsin but it's expanded and it's found all over the state and when the flower there's about a two-week period when the flowers are out and they are just delicious they are like sort of like a cross of of sweet peas with a little honey vanilla on them. So they have the nectar. You, you get the experience of the nectar and that wonderful aroma that attracts the bees along with this, you know, it's related to peas, it's a legume, and, and you get this 
uh, sweet pea type flavor mixed in with there. And you can just eat them raw. You can put them in a cold salad. You can put them in a fruit salad. You can put them in chicken soup. You can put them, I mean, you can put them in a stir fry. They're just so versatile and so good. So, but there's a, a lot of those things. I mean, a lot of this food is all around us. Number to call with your questions about foraging, 800-780-9742. We're continuing our discussion with Sam Thayer about foraging. I Okay, if I read that if you're harvesting anything from plants to insects, if something has bright colors, it's nature's way of telling you to stay away, like eating it might kill you. Is that true or false? Well, that's true for insects and animals in general. Um, it's generally not true with plants. The point of the bright color on a, on a flower, for example, is to attract an insect pollinator. Um, so there's no like necessary correlation between that and, and, and toxicity. Um, there are a number of edible flowers and, and black locust is definitely at the top of my list. Um, but there's a lot of very pretty and totally edible flowers from that, you know, to dandelion, which, you know, dandelion wine is famously made from the flowers. Um, but, uh, there's a lot of things I would take, put flavor wise above, above a dandelion. Um, and, uh, you know, salsify mm-hmm. flowers, mm-hmm. which is a dandelion relative that grows taller and has grass like leaves, but the flower is very dandelion like and makes these big fluffy heads. Um, and this is a plant that you can go to farm and fleet and buy the seeds and plant in your garden. And it's a root vegetable you can occasionally buy at a, a store or a farmer's market, um, but if you grow the plants yourself or find it growing wild because it's common statewide, you can not only eat that root, but also the flower, the flower stalk, the stalk, the flower bud, and the young leaves. All those parts are good. It's just that only the root has a long enough shelf life to be you know, stored and marketed. Mm-hmm. You have a lengthy blog post on, on your website, foragersharvest.com. Um, dedicated to milkweed. So what do you love about it, and how do you recommend using milkweed? Well, so a great thing about milkweed is that it's so common. It's so easy to recognize. There's, when it's mature, there's not much that's mistaken for it. Um, but we do have a, a prevalent myth of toxicity in milkweed, um, and this is partly related to the fact that there's multiple species of milkweed, some of which are toxic. It's also partly related to the fact that there are other plants with milky sap that are very bitter and somewhat toxic, such as dogbane. Um, but what's great about milkweed is one is a perennial, um, and so it's going to come back in the same spot year after year. I have multiple milkweed patches on my property that I curate, um, and it produces, in starting late spring, you'll get the milkweed shoots, which are somewhat asparagus-like in form but taste more like green beans. Um, and then later you're going to get flower buds, which look like broccoli, but it tastes more somewhere between green beans and broccoli in flavor. And then you'll get the young pods. So you have like a four month period at which you're going to get something to eat off of a milkweed patch. Um, and I know I talk about milkweed and people are often concerned, Hey, the monarch caterpillars need that. Mm-hmm. And I will say definitely the monarch caterpillars need people who love and appreciate milkweed so they grow it and they curate patches of it. Instead of mowing the patches, they mow around the patches. Mm-hmm. Um, and the occasional modest harvest of the milkweed actually is better for the monarchs. So a number of the monarch um, uh, organizations actually promote periodic mowing of parts of your milkweed patch so you get 
renewed young growth, which the monarch caterpillars like better. So you can have your milkweed and have monarchs um, also. You know, you can you can you can be the monarch conservationist and the milkweed eater at the same time. Um, milkweed should be cooked. You should boil it um, before eating it. Um, it does have uh, kind of a, a like a meat tenderizing quality to it um, and has been used for that purpose traditionally by indigenous people across North America for hundreds of thousands of years. You know, it's often put in meat stews as a, um, and it's great in stews and still is often cooked. Um, my friends, uh, both Ojibwa and Lakota still cook milkweed, many of them, you know, with venison stew or bison stew. And it's great. Um, but uh, so you want to cook it, but uh, it produces three great vegetables over a four month period. What you said about milkweed made me wonder about the rules. Are there, is there a hard set rule um, for how much of a wild plant or a colony of them that you should harvest? Is there like a, th- a rule of thirds or, or is, does it vary by plant? You know, that's a really great, great question. And, and it varies by plant. Um, the, uh, you know, there are some plants, invasive plants, of which there are many, um, or non-native plants that I would say you don't have to worry about the sustainability of harvesting this. Um, you know, whether that would be wild parsnip or garlic mustard, two really common invasive plants, um, uh, you know, autumn olive, collect all the fruit you want. You know, these are plants that, that a lot of money is being spent trying to eradicate. Then you have um, disturbance-dependent weeds. Things would be like garden weeds, yard and barnyard weeds. A lot of those are native. Some of them are not. But they, they, their abundance depends on human soil disturbance activity. And, you know, you might want to not harvest too much because you want to make sure there's some for yourself later. Um, but you don't really have to worry about the ecological impact of, of harvesting those either. Then you get things such as milkweed or stinging nettle, which are perennials spreading by rhizomes to form a colony. Um, you can over-harvest those. Now, if you harvest too much one year, you're not going to get rid of that colony, but you're going to set it back a little bit. So what you need to do is, is observe, you know, observe your harvest and observe your impact. Um, if you're never coming back to this spot, I wouldn't say don't take half. I wouldn't even take a third of what's there, um, you know, in a situation like that. Usually there's a lot there. You, you, you take your meal or what you need for your meal. And that's probably, you know, if there's, if there's not enough for you to take what you need for your meal, just probably leave it alone. You know, uh, sometimes the plants are struggling. They're not that common in a particular spot. So harvest where they're thriving um, and harvest in a way that allows them to keep thriving. When you're talking something like a root vegetable, there, there, there's a lot of acrimony online about whether or not it's sustainable uh-huh. to harvest ramps, for example, to dig up the bulbs. Um, it's important to keep in mind that the, the harvester doesn't just harvest. Every experienced forager becomes a caretaker of their place. Um, you know, there's places where I dig ramps and I pull garlic mustard. The positive effect of me removing the garlic mustard is far more beneficial to the ramps, um, out, outweighs, you know, any negative factor of me harvesting the ramps. But also, um, I harvest ramps in my sugar bush and have for almost 20 years and know that I can harvest a substantial amount and, you know, they will fill that space back up as long as I, you know, I don't allow some other plant or change the environment. So some other plant comes in and takes that space, uh, you know, 
plants do have a remarkable ability to grow and to prosper under good under good in good circumstances. But with ramps, I'm taking about thirty percent every five years from my ramp patch. Okay. Um, so it really depends, and you know, you become the observer and the caretaker because there's there aren't really good broad guidelines for what is and isn't sustainable. Um, when you're picking mushrooms, it's not a thing you have to worry about very much. Just like you don't have to worry about, you know, you pick a lot of apples from an apple tree. That's not going to hurt that tree. You might want to think about leaving some for the wildlife, but you're not going to hurt that population by taking the fruit. You know, a, an oak tree drops millions of acorns. And if it's lucky, it'll replace itself with one, one tree, you know, mm-hmm. w- w- when it dies. So you, you don't have a, a great ecological impact in, in the, the big sphere by collecting some nuts. You know, an oak tree might drop 60 gallons a year on average. Sure. Sam Thayer is our guest today on Route 51. We're looking at foraging for wild food all year round in Wisconsin. Ahead, what to do with those foods you find in your backyard, and we'll answer your questions, too, when you call us at 800-780-9742. You can also send an email to ideas at wpr.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. You're listening to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward with our guest, Sam Thayer, on a discussion about foraging for wild food. What would you like to know? You can email us, ideas at WPR.org, or give us a call, 800-780-9742. Sam, we were talking earlier in the hour about color, and you mentioned insects, so I have to know. Some people who are foragers also forage for insects. Have you ever done that? I've eaten a few insects in my life. It doesn't appeal to me a whole bunch, but m- mostly when other people have collected and prepared them, I'm willing to eat them. But um, there's, there's not, I'm not that into insect foraging. Okay, because <laughs> it was one of those things when I was doing some research for this show, I thought, wow, I, I didn't even think about people eating bugs and stuff. So that's just just one of those bizarre things, I think. But uh, But I suppose to the people who do it, it's not bizarre at all, right? Well, you know, there's an anthropologist who wrote an interesting paper about 30 years ago basically explaining when people eat insects. And his conclusion was that when people have low-protein diets and the insects are large and they swarm so that they're labor-efficient to harvest, then people tend to eat insects. And so you see this all over the world, mostly in areas where people have low-protein diets. That's mostly tropical parts of the world. Um that people eat more insects uh, because because protein is harder to come by in tropical areas. And uh, so that makes a lot of sense. Well, I don't live in a tropical area with large swarming insects, and so I've just never gotten into that. <laughs> right. Well, I want to ask you about equipment. What's the basic equipment you recommend for somebody who's just getting started with this? Well, that's the great thing about foraging. There's like there's like no entry cost, you know. It, you know, if, if I was to tell you one thing to start foraging – Get one of those three and a half gallon Cambro plastic tubs. It, you can put you put anything you collect in there. They're easy to clean. They're food grade plastic. They're super durable. I have one. I got it in 1998, and I still I'm still using it. You know, and I pick berries into it. I I pick greens into it. I I pick nuts into it. I mean, and that's such a simple piece of equipment. Um, but you know, uh, some good scissors um, for cutting greens will will increase your your efficiency and and your quality, um, you know, get a cloth bag with a couple 
nice, clean plastic bags in it, you know, so that if you have something that's dirty, you can put it in the dirty bag and your clean stuff stays in the clean bag. But other than that, I mean, there's not a lot of equipment. I mean, certain things, you know, harvesting wild rice, I need a canoe and knocking sticks and a pole, and there's a lot of equipment that goes into that. But your run-of-the-mill entry-level foraging for greens and, um, you know, shoot vegetables and fruits and nuts and berries, that's sort of – You've already had you already have the stuff you need, so it's knowledge intensive. It's not capital intensive. Well, and you talked about the learning curve, and there's there's quite a bit of a learning curve here when you're trying to get started at this. Uh, are there mentors that, that you can turn to that can maybe help you along? Uh, what do you recommend, or apps you can use? What 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 do you say to somebody who's just starting out? I would say if you can find other people that forage, that is great. That will be the fastest route to learning and to the confidence and to the social normalizing you might need to feel comfortable with this because you're going to find out that foragers are the – not only is foraged food the best food in the world, but foragers are the friendliest, most generous, most giving, most exciting people that you're going to find um, are just great people to hang around with. Um, there are not a lot of well, like organized foraging clubs, but it's not too hard online to find different foraging groups on Facebook or other social media um, and connect with people that way. But if you have a foraging buddy in your area, that is a great help. There's a, a number of foraging instructors around the Midwest. You know, there's some in the Madison area, the Milwaukee area, Chicago, Twin Cities area, and, and scattered points in between. Um, hook up with one of those people. Just, you know, uh, go on one of the plant walks, maybe free, maybe cost 20 or $30. I don't, you, you, you know, just get your foot in the door and you'll have your eyes open to four or five things that you're going to remember. Mm-hmm. And that's all you need. And you're going to hit the ground running. Um, get some books. Every forager that I know um, uh, has multiple books, you know, and you can't be like, I'm only going to learn the edible plants or the edible mushrooms if you're going to eat mushrooms you need to get interested in mushrooms and learn mushrooms if you're going to be interested in plants eating plants you need to be interested in plants you know don't uh, you know don't be um frustrated by the variety in nature oh there's so much here i can't <laughs> learn it all be excited oh there's so much here to learn this is so cool it's like learning another language at first it's a little bit hard mm-hmm. but then each as you learn the grammar and you add more words, each additional word gets easier and easier to learn, and you start to see the patterns. But it's not like a language in that you don't have to know a whole bunch to use it. You can just know one food, and you can incorporate it into your diet. And whenever you're ready, you can learn the next one. How easy is it to find recipes for the wild foods we find? Uh, what are some resources there? And what are some of the easiest things that beginners can make? Well, you know, uh, it's really easy to take uh, a cookbook. Uh, you know, there's tons of cookbooks on the Mediterranean diet, Mediterranean cooking. And just simply take some of those greens out and put in some wild greens instead of the charred or the chard and romaine or whatever it might be. You know, uh, you'll see, you know, four or five greens used in, in, in these Mediterranean cookbooks. But actually, when you replace that four or five 
or two from that recipe with 16 wild ones in a mixture, that's what the actual Mediterranean diet consisted of, consists of. Um, you know, a, a lot of these traditional Mediterranean recipes had 15 to 40 different greens and vegetables in them. Um, so it's real easy to convert, convert reg, vegetables um, to similar wild vegetables in, in a lot of our common cooking. Um, there's also foragerchef.com. This is Alan Burgo, who is a great chef and forager who has some awesome wild food recipes. He is, he's actually in Menominee, Wisconsin. Um, now uh, grew up in Minnesota. Um, but when I try his recipes, almost always have success. And when I don't, it's probably my fault, not the recipe's fault. Um, there are a number of good cookbooks that have come out in the last decade for, for using wild foods. And the, the, the good old Yule Gibbons, Stalking the Wild Asparagus, Stalking the Healthful Herbs. Those are great foraging books with good recipes, 50 years old, don't have pictures, but the text is still top-notch. You talked a little bit earlier this hour about uh, the potential impact of using pesticides and lawn maintenance, um, those kinds of things that, that can really be problematic if you're foraging. Uh, is there a way to clean that, uh, clean that off? I mean, do you just have to stay away from it altogether? Or can you use a cleaning solution to still make use of those, of those backyard foods? As far as pesticides and herb, herbicides particularly are intended to be absorbed by the plant. And so there's no way to clean that off. Um, and even if it might theoretically be removable in the very first, you know, very shortly after its application, I'm not going to try. You know, um, like I'm just going to avoid areas that are that, that I think are, are regularly sprayed or I know to be sprayed. Um, and the, 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 the toxicity of those chemicals is just too strong for me to want to mess around with them. You know, your, your body has a really good detoxification system, but it wasn't designed for some of these, these chemicals, um, and we don't know a lot of, about them. Um, so I, w I would just try to avoid those areas. And actually, I use that same philosophy for dirt also. Like, dirt on greens, I'm just going to avoid them. I'm going to find clean greens to begin with because mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I don't want dirt in my salad. Even if I think I've washed it, usually something gets missed. So I just, I, I'm really picky. You know, the more you forage, the pickier you get. But, you know, people say that I'm a, a foraging snob because I'm like, no, no, I'm not, <laughs> picking, I'm not picking those bellflower shoots. I'm picking these because those are good, but these are perfect. In, in roadside foraging, is there a concern about emissions? And I also want to ask you about PFAS because there's a, a lot of concern regarding PFAS and wild fish and game. So, I mean, what about that with respect to wild plants? Okay, two, two great questions. Um, roadside foraging, I would say don't forage along busy roads. Uh, I mean, s to be honest here, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a general admonition not to forage near roads. And yet, simultaneously, rural people that forage forage a heck of a lot along lightly used rural roads. I mean, there's a county highway near me with fairly wide shoulders and great raspberries and blackberries. And not only my family, but 50 other families in the county pick berries on the side of that county highway. Um, and it's, you know, it's public land that it's going through and, you know, it's just like a local tradition. And, you know, we get a good distance from the road and it's a lightly used road. You might pick for an hour and one car goes by. So it really depends on, on the situation. Um, you know, and 
there's also that question of, of uh, you know, if you're in a city, there's fumes all around. You know, there's, there, there's road exhaust all around in our larger cities, um, and it's settling on everything all the time. Uh, and so are we going to not eat from our gardens, you know, not eat forage stuff because of that? I don't think so. I don't think it's worth that trade-off. But there are places where I'm like, no, this place, this, there's too much going on here pollution-wise. I'm not eating this. So that's kind of a personal decision on the, the level of comfort that you, that you feel. As, as far as the, the PFAS, I have not looked into that as deeply as I would like to because I started hearing a lot more about this in the last year or so. Um, but plants aren't bioaccumulating the way that, that animals are. Um, and that's that's important to recognize, although some plants do pick up, say, like selenium in certain soils and, and concentrate it in their tissues. Um, but uh, that's something to do, do research on and and, and um, mm-hmm. check out. I haven't I haven't looked into PFAS specifically. Is it possible to create kind of a, I guess, sort of an edible landscape in my own backyard? How would you approach that? It's not only possible. But every avid forager eventually starts doing it. Really? <laughs> and what's, what's great about these wild foods is, you know, we draw this, like, this, this distinction between foraging and gardening. It's really an unnatural, mostly Western European distinction. So when Europeans came to North America, they encountered a lot of landscapes, say like Yosemite National Park. They thought this was a wilderness. And the people that lived there, the Miwok, they thought it was their land that was carefully managed. It was their acorn orchard that managed not only for acorns, but a whole bunch of root vegetables. And you see this constantly, like all over North America, that what we, what Europeans call the wilderness, indigenous people managed that carefully for food production. It was somewhere in between. Um, and, and so just give yourself the license to, to do this however you wish. Um, you know, the great thing about wild uh, and native plants, especially the perennials, is that they're designed for this landscape. They work on this soil and landscape and climate. They they aren't beset by the same weather and pest problems as domestic things, and they're so much easier to grow. It's often astounding. So sometimes you can just get them started and just help them the tiniest bit, and you end up with these beautiful patches of things that take care of themselves in the same way that like a rhubarb or a lovage patch would take care of itself. Um, you can get native local plants from nurseries um, such as Prairie Moon Nursery, Prairie Nursery. These are some examples. Um, or you can transplant them responsibly from the wild yourself. I did a recovery project for transplanting some, some native glade mallow, which is an edible but relatively rare plant um, that was being destroyed for, for a construction project. And I distributed those to, to dozens of foragers who now have them growing and they're, you know, um, this beautiful plant that then they can take care of and have in their backyard the rest of your life and get some food off of it every year. So, so there's, um, there's a, you know, find out what soil you have and find out what plants do well on that soil um, that are edible um, and, and really aim for the perennial ones so that you can put them in and have them stay. And, uh, and you can develop something beautiful that's great for wildlife and gives you constant food for the rest of your life. And it's just a joy. It's the same joy as anyone gets from gardening. We have about a minute or so left in our time together, and I'm curious if there are any plants you recommend harvesting for or planting for medicinal purposes. Oh, um, you know, the, 
I'm a firm believer in food as medicine, that the best medicine is a healthy, varied diet. Um, and I, any way in which you participate in foraging and broadening your diet using native plants and wild plants, that is going to promote your health. Um, there are a few medicinal things that I collect and that I grow, but I, I, don't, I don't have any, like, broad general, you know, medical mm -hmm. advice, but that good nutrition and exercise and state of mind is the best thing you can do for your health. In our final 30 seconds, I just have to know, what is the weirdest, most unusual foraged food that you've ever eaten? Oh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think of any of it as weird or unusual. <laughs> I think the unusual is cheese. Oh. Cheese is weird. When you think about it. I mean, I love cheese, and I grew up in Wisconsin. But when you think about it, cheese is weird. Wild food is not weird. All right, Sam Thayer. Uh, thank you so much for, for being with us today. We have truly enjoyed it. It was fun to be here. Thank you. This is Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward, extending one more time a sincere thanks to our guest, Sam Thayer. Our producers are Joy Ratch Kramer and Kate Spranger. Our executive producer is Rick Ryer. Joy is also our on-air producer today. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme, special music today from Sergio. You can hear the archive of today's program as well as our previous programs at WPR.org slash Route 51. If you have an idea for a future program, email us at ideas at WPR.org. PR.org. We would sure love to hear from you. Next week, we'll be back with another fascinating discussion. We sure hope you'll join us for that. Until then, we're heading out of town. And if you would like to learn more about foraging, you can check out foragersharvest.com. That is the website from Sam Thayer, who was today's guest. Have a great week. Yo, this is Sergio in the house. And today we're talking about wild edibles and what not to eat in the woods. Listen to these words, yo. I said weeds are incredible. They're healthy and they're edible. Listen to my words because I'm a source that's credible. I took a long hike in late 98. Learned a ton about plants from things that I ate. With my family across the whole nation to bring to you this wild declaration. Yo, edibles are awesome, tasty and free. But don't stick them in your face to be just like me. Plenty of things don't belong in your mouth, so check out your weeds before you swallow them down. Don't eat something if you don't know what it is. I said don't eat something if you don't know what it is. <laughs>